0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: Good morning, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Wayner. Bruce, good morning.
2: Good morning, Rachel. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about the golden rule.
1: Me too. I think this is a very amazing and very exciting part of becoming your own banker. And so we're continuing on with our series, Becoming Your Own Banker, from Nelson Nash's book that he really unpacked and um, revealed to the world about this concept called infinite banking. And if you're have been following us for a while. You're probably very familiar with Nelson Nash. You've probably read Becoming Your Own Banker. You've probably heard us talk about infinite banking quite a lot. But if you are brand new, this is going to be also a great treat for you. So we're talking about infinite banking, a concept of using specially designed whole life insurance for the purpose of storing capital. You not only have a death benefit, but you also are building this cash value that you can use. And so Nelson wrote this book, Bruce I believe in the, it was in the 80s wasn't it that he originally wrote becoming your best well
2: Own he, well actually he 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 started putting the concept together in the 80s but the book did not actually come out until 2000 so it it took a while just like a lot of people that write books you know put together their thoughts and so on and so forth and then decide you know whether they want to launch it or not but they, the first book actually came out in 2000
1: well, don't I know that? Everything seems like it shouldn't happen much faster in the publishing world. So, um, I'm in the process of getting ready to publish a book that we have moved the deadline on multiple times, and I'm thinking we're now gearing towards August. So I should just say fall. Fall of this year. So we're continuing on this series. Bruce, I think that we have been in the series for nine episodes. No, we are on episode nine today. I was looking for the number. We have done eight episodes. With the beginning of this book. And now we're continuing on with part nine. This is called The Golden Rule. And again, this is Becoming Your Own Banker by R. Nelson Nash, really the father of infinite banking. We owe so much to him just for revealing the truth of how you can use specially designed life insurance and really um, just completely improve your financial life. So we have, I don't think we need to do a a gigantic recap here. Let's dive into the golden rule, but Bruce, let's just hear your thoughts about life as we start. I really love to um, just get your thoughts at the beginning of the show.
2: Yeah, first of all, I'd like to welcome everybody to um, the live chat in um, all our social media um, platforms. And so, if you have any questions or comments, we'd really appreciate it. You know, Rachel, I, <clears throat> I was, I was uh, contemplating. A lot of things as I was preparing for this podcast. And one of the things I was contemplating was the twists, the twist, and all the malformation of the concept that has happened in the last five years through social media. And then I got to self reflecting and I got to thinking that, you know, you and I probably have slipped a little bit also from the original message and that was becoming your own banker by taking the financing or the banking level back to the you and me you know situation and you know you get so excited when you have access to capital and this is partly what the golden rule is talking about today access to capital but you get excited about making more capital with it not actually not actually as excited when you're recapturing the borrowing cost of it and that was why nelson originally set it up and then i'm contemplating all of this yesterday and i'm contemplating it this morning when i wake up and i'm watching the news and they're announcing that the average citizen not adult but the average citizen in the united states of about 330 plus million people in the united states at the time we do this podcast has $10,000 of credit card debt. The $10,000 of credit card debt currently carries an average of 24% on that particular debt. And if you amortize that out over seven years, you will actually pay more in financing costs than you would have paid in the original $10,000 that you put on the credit card.
1: Well, isn't that astounding? So everyone stop and think here for a second. It's not a problem that we have access to debt, if you will. But the problem is that you have all this money flowing out of your control. And Bruce is saying, you just said over seven years or was it 10? Seven years. Over just simply seven years at 24% interest, you have more than 10,000, more than your principal amount of debt going out of your control to pay that finance charge. And that's profound.
2: Yeah, and, and part of the problem with this is that uh and Nelson brings this up in in the book. He talks about um, you know, not only bankers, um, government officials, and he even mentions some clergy actually espouse that this is needed to write mm-hmm. basically to right the wrongs that have happened, and that saving before you actually spend has actually fell out of vogue for, for, for a variety of reasons. One is, obviously, the banks have an ulterior motive because if they can make 24% on your money and yet only pay you currently, yeah, they might pay you uh, 4.45% on a money market or a, a CD, but the, the your general demand deposits, such as savings and checking accounts, are still below one percent. So think about the access to capital for the banks. They're accessing capital uh, at about one percent. I was t- I was actually mentoring some of the people in the Nelson Nash Institute yesterday, and we were talking about all banks do is buy and sell money, and nobody thinks about it in those terms. First of all, you you have to. If you set up a bank charter yes just like silicon valley bank that has been in the news they you have to put a lot of money set aside for a long time before you even get your charter we talked about this on past on uh mm-hmm. past but you but you can't do anything with that money it, coincidentally a lot of times the banks actually buy life insurance bank owned life insurance or are, are bully for their tier one capital that's capital that must remain completely safe but then they actually buy money to actually use. And how do they buy it? Well, they don't go out and physically buy it, but they they say, "If if you store the money at our bank, we'll give you this return and we'll give you this kind of customer service. Now, what is the kind of the customer service they're gonna give you? Well, you would hope that it would be, you know, access to your money at any time you want it. But the other, what they're really saying is look how, we have these nice car loans. Look how we have these nice, nice home loans. Look how we have these nice home equity line of credit loans, signature loan, business loans. Um, we also That's have selling credit cards, you,
1: selling credit you cards. Money.
2: Correct, so, so what their customer service is not actually on the buy side, it's actually on the sell side. So then they sell your money. So example, they buy your money for 1%, then they turn around and offer you capital at 24%. Now, if you don't think, as Nelson used to say, if you don't feel just a little bit manipulated when you, when you stop and think about that, then you really have to wake up. They don't, And they don't want you to wake up.
1: Oh, of course not. Because it's in their best interest to continue this massive arbitrage by buying low and selling high. Because their controlling capital, which is the purpose of this particular conversation that we're having today that is all about who is in control. So Bruce, was there more of that before we dive into the the topic of today's?
2: There was a little bit more of that. So, you know, I'm dealing with a couple of people that are looking to change the way that they do their, um, their capital appreciation and they're getting they're getting into the weeds, like, what is the percentage of this? What is the percentage of that? How much is my money going to grow? So and so forth. And Nelson would always would say, you're majoring in the minors. It's not about the rate of return in the particular policy. It's about the accumulation of capital. Because once you have that capital, now you make the rules. And Rachel, I got to thinking about it, who is making the rules in the United States right now? And that would be the net worth of the United States senators and representatives. So I did a little research on this. And by the way, it's kind of eerie by party lines, it's almost exactly 50 50. Hmm. So, you know, there is this idea that, you know, maybe the Republicans are actually more about, you know, Making money, and the Democrats are about actually giving and sacrificing for our country and so on and so forth. But if you look at it through party lines, it actually is very, very close. When I say very close, i 'm talking about within one person, either a Democrat or Republican, depending on which years you're looking at so it's it's fifty fifty split about the Republicans and Democrats and the Senate and the Congress, so they have amass fortunes. When I'm talking about fortunes, I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. And you got to ask yourself, for people that go into Congress and the the Senate with smaller amounts of net worth, and then gain that net worth, well, that's one way that you could say that the golden rule, people with the money make the rules. But you also have to, to look at it as those particular people, not only do they have Uh, monetary, uh, power, but they also have power of absolute power and absolute power. The philosophy corrupts absolutely. And that's Mm -hmm. what we see all the time. And I've said this for years. I believe there are a lot of people that go into public office that are good people, but then they sell their souls and then they actually keep convincing themselves that I have to do this little thing right now to actually for the greater good. Oh, next week, I have to do this little thing right now for the greater good. Oh, next week, I have to do the little thing right now for the greater good. And suddenly, those little things all add up to a really big thing that they can't get out of. And they constantly rationalize. So, they have the power. So, they have the money. They have the power to continue to make the money. So that's what Nelson was trying to say was the golden rule in the Bible is, you know, treat each other the way you do, would like to be treated. Yeah,
1: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this sums right. up the law and the prophets.
2: Right. And he also, but and he says he has to chuckle when he sees this perversion of the principle that was learned in the childhood, one that serves us well, that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. But this is corruption but this corruption is very true also. And that's what I was just talking about. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a pity that it is not often looked upon with favor. Perhaps it is because we have almost lost the concept of capitalism is all about. The common man has become so infatuated with living for today. And boy, is that true? I mean, it's gotten even worse when it comes to social media, because I find it very interesting on social media where people say, look how rich I am and I can teach you how to be rich also. Look at my Lamborghini, look at my big house, you know, and and oh, by the way, I can get this to you in the next 30 days. I saw something last night where somebody said, I can make you $100,000 in 30 days. Now, if we all step back and think about this logically, the chances of that actually being true are not very good, but we want it to be true. And the people that are espousing that, they know we want it to be true. So now all of a sudden, you know, you're gonna sign up for their course of four four 499 or whatever it is. And that's actually how they're producing their money through very little service. It's really through promises of going forward. You know, it's, it's a multi-level marketing scheme in a lot of ways.
1: I think there's just so many pieces that you've uh, brought together already at the beginning. And I, I love that you did all that research, even into the net worth of representatives and senators, because what we're talking about today is this concept. Nelson Nash calls it the golden rule, and then he clarifies what he means. He doesn't mean the Sunday school Um, and not even just Sunday school. It's the, the thing that we learned in Sunday school. It's the thing that we carry inside of us that we know that we should always do what to others, the thing that we would like to have done to us. We know that we should treat people right because we want to be treated right. He's not talking about that golden rule. He's talking about a golden rule that he says is defined as those who have the gold make the rules. And that's what he's, what he's calling this corruption or perversion of the original golden rule. So what we want to do for this episode is lock into that idea of those who have the gold make the rules. He's talking about this idea that those who are in control, who have capital, are in power. They make the rules that benefit themselves best, and they make the rules that everyone else follows. Now, we don't have to be... um suckered into following these rules. It just is a natural thing that happens. And the reason that it happens is because when you have control of capital, everyone else needs that capital. And so there's so many different components of this. Bruce, you were talking about the the idea of that power concentrated in politics. It also is concentrated in the banking system. And that's where Nelson Nash was really um, driving home with this whole concept of becoming your own banker. Because Here's what he he said, and I'm going to kind of recover what you mentioned earlier, that um, there's that lost concept of what capitalism is all about, that we've um, become so infatuated with living for today, that we've had the importance of savings or created, cre- the, um, let me just say that again, because I don't want the meaning to be lost. The importance of saving, which means creating capital, is a lost value. I would almost call it a lost art. We don't appreciate in our culture having capital. We don't appreciate the act of saving and setting capital aside so that we have access to that capital. And because we have absolved that responsibility of controlling capital, who controls it? Somebody besides us. So that's the banking institutions, the banking um, industry as a whole. And so what happens when we need capital then is that we have to go to that lender. And we have to pay the interest rates that they're charging because they have the capital. They're making the rules. We don't get to decide what interest rate we want to pay if we have no money and we need money. And we're going to go get that money from a banking institution through some form of a loan or credit card or something, a line of credit. We're going to have to play by their rules because they're the ones in charge. They have the capital. So this whole question then comes back to, Whose responsibility is it to control capital? Well, if we want to be in control of our life and be able to make financial decisions that are in control of our own destiny, then we need to control capital, which means we have to have capital, which means we have to store capital, which means we need to value the art of saving first before we spend so that we can build that capital so we can be in that position of control and not saying, oh, I guess I've got to go to the bank got to pay that 24% interest because I have no other choice. So it all comes down to personal responsibility and taking, taking back the reins and really recognizing that you get to have that position of control when you value the art of saving.
2: Yeah. We're bombarded. We're bombarded with this idea of velocity of money. And um, once again, I always, I, I tell all our listeners you know, you should always be listening to anybody with a discerning ear. In other words, is what they're telling me something that I value? Is is what they're telling me something that aligns with my morals and character? And what's very, very interesting is the velocity of money thing makes a lot of sense. You know, don't keep your money someplace where you cannot make more money. However... <clears throat> What I what I'm finding right now with private equity, uh, what are called SPAC special acquisition companies, and just people in general that feel like they have to keep their money working, they're making mistakes by just deploying the money in a time where the deploying the money is very very risky. And what's what's very interesting is you can make one mistake and it can unravel years Mm -hmm. of. Of uh, good things that you have done, and uh, you can look this up. But you know what's I find interesting is Bill Gates, who's one of the most interesting, or excuse me, one of the most richest men, maybe one of the most interesting men too, but <laughs> one of the richest men in the world, actually keeps somewhere in the neighborhood of forty uh, percent of his of his net worth in banks. Okay, so he's you know, the it fluctuates because he still owns Microsoft stock, but, uh, you know, he can be worth $122 billion one day and $150 billion. But there's, there are reports that he has $50 billion in banks. Now, I know there's going to be people screaming, listening to a podcast. Well, that's stupid. That's stupid. Well, what what I believe people have learned is we need to invest in things that we know, and we need to store money that is safe, liquid that we can access quickly to actually purchase or give away in ideal situations. And Bill Gates does give away a lot of money. And that's what Nelson's saying is, if you have this available at the right time, now you actually get to dictate the terms. And he didn't mean it. Nelson was a very Christian man. He didn't mean it like taking advantage of somebody. But we are in an auction system he He tells us the the story about and he builds a case for that. He says, as a result, someone must provide the capital that is necessary to stain our life our way of life. The strategy carries with it a very high cost, and he's talking about the interest that we're paying and all suffer the consequences and When he says we are all suffering the consequences, what he means is this matriculates into the economy. And and this is what economists call the invisible hand of the economy. So you think, well, why do I worry about it? I'm going to try to stick to just myself. Well, whenever something happens in the economy, it trickles down to you, no matter whether you think it does or not. And he, he says, let me build a case for you. What could be more Id- idyllic than a marriage of Japanese capital and Mexican labor? So what he's saying is that the Me- Mexican culture generally has a labor culture. They, they enjoy working. They see the value of hard work, so on and so forth. And the Japanese actually, they actually are a saving society. So they have capital. So here he says, here we have one group of people who need employment in the worst way. And there's another group that has more money than you can imagine. If we can only get them together, the project would be paradise, and so it says Panasonic, which is a Japanese company, wanted to build a plant in Mexico to solve the obvious equation. But in the their infinite wisdom of the Mexican government at the time, if you want to establish such a business there, they required that the Mexican should own 51% of the business. So that you're giving up control. That means the Mexicans control the business. And so Typical Japanese strategy runs something like this. You put your money into your business. You expect that you're not going to make any money for the first five years. And then the next five years, you're going to actually make money, but you're not going to take it out of the business. You're going to just use it to expand the business. This, by the way, is the Amazon model that Amazon, Amazon, Amazon's been doing. Uber, these, these models right now that, that the current administration And frankly, even probably administrations before and after them will espouse that all these corporations are are having all this revenue, but they're not paying any taxes. One of the reasons they're not paying any taxes is because they're not really showing a profit because they're taking all the profits and putting it back into the business. But yet the share price goes up for these corporations and thus the founders of of the corporations have a very very high net worth so it looks like they're making money even though they're not paying any taxes. Well, they're they're paying taxes on if they sell something to access money, but they're also providing a lot of taxes for for all the labor that's being used. So what happened in this situation was the Japanese said we don't want to do this anymore so they pulled out of Mexico and now the Mexicans don't have any more well, um, there was a piece. Job, there,
1: job. Was, there was a key piece about that where the Japanese had this idea of let's put the capital in for five years, let's then reinvest it for another five years. But the Mexican frame of mind was let's. we They demanded a bonus at the very start, so they wanted to be be paid right away. There was a mismatch oh, of right. ideals. That's right. In terms of the financial goal, where the Mexican perspective was, we have to take the profits right away, and the Japanese. We're saying, no, we need to reinvest this so that we can profit later on. So I think that was the, the main distinction why, why they had to pull out.
2: Correct. And, and to, to uh, pull this as an analogous to infinite banking, this is where everybody's getting stuck with this idea is, oh, I got to see more of my rate of return. I have to have capital right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And we have been telling people the dangers of doing that. The dangers of having a skinny base policy with a lot of PUAs, you access that capital, you go deploy that capital, you obviously are not going to be able to return that capital in a short period of time because if you were going to be able to you, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even start a nip in a banking uh, concept policy. you would just buy it without doing it because then you're going to get all your capital back right away. So why would you do this? Situation where you're getting uh, a lack of liquidity. But the lack of liquidity is actually good. Matter of fact, right now we're at the point where we're trying to, our government's trying to figure out about the debt ceiling situation. Oh,
1: yes. And,
2: and if the debt ceiling does not get solved, the stock market is going to crash. Well, many of my clients have called me and are worried about that. And they say, is that going to affect my portfolio? And I say, first of all, you have a lot of capital in guaranteed positions. We like that whole life insurance, annuities. We also have a lot of capital with our clients in alternative investments that are not liquid. Without when you have something that's not liquid, it's not affected by public emotion because you cannot sell it like you can in the public markets. And so taking emotion out of it by actually building a policy that you have to delay gratification just like the Japanese were trying to delay gratification, Mm -hmm. is actually a good thing for building capital into the future.
1: What's so interesting about this is that infinite banking is meant to be a long-term play. It really is not meant to be something that will supercharge your money tomorrow and make you richer tomorrow so that you can... I mean, there's a lot of benefit of using infinite banking. And there is benefit immediately. So don't don't mishear what I'm saying. Yes, you can earn a return in two places at the same time. Yes, you can put your money into the policy. You can also borrow against it. However, the problem is when you're trying to run the policy as hard as possible and deploy all of your capital immediately, you're still stuck in the mindset over here of saying, I have to have all my money out working somewhere. The the real focal point that we're trying to change and shift from, I have to deploy my capital. Instead of that, we want to say the value is on holding capital. Because when you hold capital, you're in a position of control. And so I'm going to come back to two things. One, you mentioned with Bill Gates. So the idea of holding 40% of the capital in the bank. Well, there's two distinctions here. One, Bruce, when you first said, you might be mad saying, why are you doing that? The first, idea would be, somebody might be saying, well, why are you not deploying more capital over here? Why are you saving it all? You shouldn't be holding on to cash. You should be deploying it. Don't you know that money can work harder for you if you deploy that capital? And so that's stuck in this paradigm of saying, I need to send all my money out and it needs to be earning a return for me. And that's the only goal of my money that I'm not spending is earn a return, earn a return, get it as high as possible. The other side of that is saying, how do I value Saving? How do I have capital that's accessible to me? Nelson Nash says it this way. He said, when you have large amounts of cash on hand, all sorts of opportunities appear. He said, opportunity seeks liquidity. What does that mean? Okay. If I'm over here in this paradigm of saying I have to deploy everything immediately, what's going to actually happen is that you'll have no capital that you're holding because all of it's deployed. And you're going to immediately seek the next investment and put your money out to work. Maybe not at the ideal time, maybe not with the best investment strategy, maybe not at the best deal. And all of your money is deployed. So when that best deal does come along, who's going to get to take advantage of that? The person who has their capital sitting, waiting to strategically deploy when the best opportunities arise. So it's a value shift. It's a personal decision to shift from just putting my money to work as hard as possible over here to saying, I value having capital, storing capital so I can be in control, so I can make the rules so that when other people need capital for their investment deals, they're willing to take capital that I have. I set the interest rate because I'm the banker and I am the one who is making the rules. So that's the first distinction I wanted to make with Bill Gates. Now, the other piece was if you are in the infinite banking space, you could say, why is he putting his money just in the bank? Because you know that you're barely earning any rate of return. There's better places to store your liquid cash than just in the bank. That's a different distinction. That's a matter of which tool are you going to use once you're having that value of savings? Do you use a bank? Do you put the money in a specially designed life insurance policy? Well, we believe and know that there's a lot more value in putting more capital towards a life insurance policy because you are growing it at a better rate of return while it's liquid and accessible, and then it's safe as well. So it's not gonna drop in value. There's just so much more benefit to putting your money there. But that's a smaller distinction. Whereas the first distinction that you were pointing out, Bruce, is really that value shift from deploying capital all the time over here to saving and holding capital. So um, there's another piece that I want to bring into this, but um, that I think is the, the main shift that we need to make in order to take back the control of the golden rule that he's pointing yeah. out here.
2: Let me, let me tell a quick story because um, I think stories people relate to. This, this is not a client, but this is a friend of mine who I met about five years ago and we kind of hit it off. And, and uh, he does some e- ETF trading for our firm and so on and so forth. And he makes a really good living, you know, a couple million dollars a year. And I guess several years ago, I'm talking several years ago, uh, somebody a guardian agent, and we normally don 't talk about specific um, because so guardian doesn 't really mean it could have been any mutual company, actually espoused to him that you know hey, you ought to be putting some of your money into whole life insurance and he said he didn 't even really know why he was doing it um, other than he did want to have some protection for his his family, so he started putting about $84,000 a year. I don't know how many years ago he's been doing this, but it's well over 10 years ago. And, you know, he calls me one day because he knew that I, you know, had this podcast and he knows what I do and so on and so forth. And he says, Should I still be doing this? I said, Well, send me, ask for an in-force Illustration, send it to him. Now, personally, I knew he should still be doing it. I didn't even have to look at an in-force Illustration because I knew he was actually having a money making machine right now but I wanted to show it to him on paper. That's why I did this. So I showed it. I said, Andy, let me, you know, you're putting 7,000 in a month and it's going up by 14,000. Why wouldn't you do this? And he, and he was, he had no idea because his guardian agent actually wasn't following up with him and so on and so forth. So that's the part of the capitalization. He was just sitting on capital. How much capital is he sitting on? $1.1 $1. 1 million. So then about a month ago, he calls me up and says, man, Bruce, I'm buying my condo because he's moving from New Jersey. This is another uh, philosophy that we could talk about. New Jersey with a with state income tax of 12 plus percent. He wants to get out of New Jersey and move to Florida with 0% state income tax. So right away, you know, he's going to be making, I know this sounds crazy, but if he makes a couple million dollars a year, just that is going to save him almost a quarter of a million dollars a year. Mm. So, I mean, once again, where do, you, where do your philosophies align? So he's, he's, he's within a week of buying his condo and the bank is messing with him. I mean, here's a guy that his net worth is more than the condo of $850,000 that he's buying but they're messing with him as far as you got to show me this. Why, why is your income this? You sold some stocks here. You know? Do you plan on doing this? And they're just going back and forth and they're saying, we need all this information. And he he called me, he goes, is this a time where I could just borrow from my policy? And I said, yeah. yeah and then just become an honest banker. So the borrowing cost, which I know people get hung up with all the time, but the condo cost was going to be 7%, the borrowing cost from his policy was going to be like 5.5%. But even if it wasn't, this is what Nelson was talking about all the time. Even if it was more, he's in control. Mm-hmm. So he, he said, Well, how does this work? He had never taken a policy loan. Mm-hmm. To just call, call your guardian agent up or call guardian directly. All you have to do is sign a, sign a piece of paper. Give them your direct deposit information, your bank, they'll directly deposit in there. And you just write a check to the, to the, uh, um, the company that the title company to, to buy it. And, and he boy, did I it. I
1: bet he was so surprised was at so how ex- simple
2: the process was. Oh, he was, he was, he closed it. He was so excited. He called me back. He goes, I can't believe how great this worked. He goes, I feel so great about this. And, and that is the control that you have because you establish capital. Now in this case, yes, he's he's saving about a point and a half on interest in that situation. So he also has a monetary gain of this, but the relaxation of actually having the capital. And now, if he would have had, if he would have known this before, he may have even been able to negotiate a lower cost for the condominium because mm-hmm. he could have, he could have said, "Hey, I can close in seven days, or I can close in ten days." I don't have to get a mortgage, which takes 30 to 45 days in a lot of cases. So they may have said, I don't know, but they could have said, oh, yeah, instead of 850, because you can close, we'll do 820 or 830, whatever the number is. So that's a return on your investment also that people oh, often forget about.
1: Absolutely. You're, you have the upper hand in negotiation when you have the capital. And so I think it's profound that he had built this up, that he had been doing the right thing and didn't even realize the benefit he was creating for himself, which I think a lot of people who almost stumble into whole life insurance do that. And then later on realize, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I had this capital. That's what happened to Nelson Nash. I mean, he was funding whole life policies. And then it was several years into funding them. He had multiple policies. He said, oh my goodness, I can access this capital. And it's at a way lower rate than I'm getting at the bank. And I can control these terms because when you have capital you are, I say when you have capital, when you have a whole life insurance policy, it is building a cash value. That cash value is accessible to you by default in a way. You have access to borrow against that capital up to the amount of cash value available just because you're a policy owner. And that does not mean that you you don't have to go through any criteria or hoops or qualification process. So Bruce, in the 15 minutes that we have left He kind of, uh, so Nelson Nash goes another direction a little bit in this chapter, and he brings an article by Jackson Pemberton that was written in 1976 called A New Message on the Constitution. He kind of goes through a long dissertation about what this passage is. And he basically, what was happening is Pemberton, this guy, wrote as if he was one of the founding fathers, that he was involved in the construction of the constitution and is pointing out where successive generations had gone astray. So realize 1976, he's clearly not one of the founding fathers, but he's writing as if he were one of them, 200 years back to when the constitution was actually written. And he's saying, here's what could happen and what could go wrong. And really, there's a really long quote, but the majority of it really focuses in um, on the very first sentence that's listed out in the book here he said but in spite of all our careful effort we knew that it was not sufficient to merely launch the ship of state correctly it needed to be tended by an alert informed and jealous citizenry then he said but history like nature travels in cycles both liberty and oppression contain the seeds of their own destruction and then he said our success has brought the security which put you to sleep He's saying that the most important thing is that if we are going to have a free capitalistic society where people are free to trade and do business in a productive way and where each person is going to be in a position of control, you have to have a alert, informed, jealous citizenry. What this means is that we can't abdicate the responsibility for things like holding capital. Because when we do, we give that up to somebody else. And then we are not staying alert and informed. We're allowing ourselves to be lulled to sleep by policies that sound really good, that promise us a lot of things. And then pretty soon we are dependent on the government. We need them. We need our money to be taken from us in the form of taxes so that they can provide all these things for us that we will then enjoy. And we're giving up that responsibility by not staying alert and informed. So yeah, then he, go ahead.
2: No, no, I was just going to say, you know, th- this whole thing comes down to, you know, we, we talk about our liberties, our freedoms, but with those also comes responsibility.
1: Tremendous. And,
2: and that is the thing that Nelson, he's always, Nelson tried not to take a social security check you know because he said he didn't want to be involved but apparently there's no way not to take it <laughs> which he thought was just absolutely crazy um but what's interesting is, is that with that responsibility there you are going to co- go through trials and tribulations in your life so then the people that are in in charge congress the president they are they then start making promises to you, but those promises come with uh consequences, you know
1: and strings and those, attached, yeah, and
2: strings attached, and those consequences are often that you feel like it's a downward spiral because you're you you're not motivated to actually do something, and then you want more and more and more very recently we've had within the last 18 months, a federally mandated $15 per hour uh, minimum wage, and then inflation hit, and a congressman was quoted as saying, we have to move the minimum wage to $20 because of inflation. Well, not realizing that part of the inflationary pressure was the $15 an hour, that yes. was mandated.
1: So you and put more capital is, into the economy, you give everybody more dollars. I mean, Rabbi Lappin said this too, if you woke up in the morning and you found $2 million on your doorstep, isn't that awesome? But what if every single person in the country found $2 million on their doorstep? Well, wouldn't you believe the price of every th- single thing you're purchasing would go up by $2 million because now everyone has all this more capital. So of course you can pay more for goods and services, right?
2: Yeah. it's uh, And so that, that this is the part of the chapter that Nelson is saying is if you allow this to happen, but it's human nature, it's human nature not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and, and not, we're not saying that you shouldn't help people. Matter of fact, we're saying that the money should stay in the citizens so that they can decide who they want to help, not some central yes. government decides who, want, who wants to help. And that's the whole idea and I say all the time, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna pick which side of the aisle that you know I, I'm on because I tend to consider myself a libertarian independent. But we all have to understand that we want the same things; we just disagree on the techniques to getting there. And Nelson actually, you know, thinks that the less government. You're, you can actually overcome a lot of these stuff on a personal level. And that's what infinite banking is, overcoming a lot on the personal level.
1: I think there's so many ideas that we can connect together here. I'm going to attempt to do so in about a minute. But um, this article um, by Jackson Pemberton continues on. And he said that a lot of people use this phrase. He keeps saying, you've lost your vision of the most fundamental law, the most fundamental law, the most fundamental law. He keeps saying that phrase. And then you're like, okay, what's the most fundamental law? Come on, Mr. Pemberton, tell me what is the most fundamental law? And he said, you call the national charter, the constitution of the United States. And then he says that simple phrase contains both the totality of your plight and the seeds of your salvation. For in those six words, you reveal your feeling that both you and your law are subject to your government meaning we all have this mindset. Here's government. Well, not all of us, um, the general populace. Here's government. Here's the, um, the government controls the law of the constitution. The government controls us. We put government at the top. He said, you are not slave of the government at all, but because you think so, as well be. Then he says, nay, the constitution is your servant and the master of your government. So instead of the government being at the top of the, food chain, the pyramid, we have the constitution being the law that is the um, the top. The constitution is your, I'm sorry, I'm saying the wrong thing. The constitution is your servant and the master of your government. So let me restate all of that. We, the people are at the top. The constitution serves us and it masters the government. So he's saying the proper order of a alert, informed and jealous citizenry is that the people maintain a position of control and authority. The gov- or the constitution serves the people. The government is subservient to the constitution. So it's a completely different shift in terms of who makes the rules. So this goes back to who has the gold makes the rules. So if we, oh, let me finish his statement here. He said, it's not the constitution of the United States. It is the constitution of the people and for the United States. It is not only the law by which you are governed, It is the law by which you may govern your government. So he is saying that if we want to be in a position of proper government structure to maintain a free nation, we need to be, we, the people need to be in the position of control, not government. And if that is the case, then we need to have the gold. We need to be the ones controlling capital so that we can make the rules. So what he said, um, so then Nelson Nash goes on to say here, he brings out Shakespeare and um, there's a line that says, all the world is a stage and the people are actors thereon. Then he says, people just don't play their proper role in the scheme of things. They've abdicated their, their opportunity and responsibility as it pertains to the banking function in the economy. And they're depending on someone else to perform that job. And the character in the play is making the most money. So these ideas are all combined. The idea of who's in power is also the same idea of who controls capital. And if we don't like the government taking over the power that we are supposed to be standing in as the people, then we need to change our financial paradigm from giving up control and letting somebody else be the one who controls capital to truly valuing savings and controlling capital so that we have gold in our control. He uses the term gold, but it's it means do you have capital in your hand that you control. And then towards the very bottom, he mentions, you will always be at the mercy of the ones who have the gold. He brings out Atlas Shrugged, which I happen to love that book. was um, just so much that was very powerful in, in terms of the book. And I just want to highlight one thing. It brought out this concept that if you focus on fairness and equality and money being given according to need, the end of that is destruction. Destruction of people, destruction of relationships, destruction of a complete and entire society, destruction of the will to work, destruction of um, the value of valuing other human beings. The opposite, though, showed up as true in Ayn Rand's book, and it was that capitalism, a free market, taking responsibility for yourself and your life, that led to freedom, to thriving, to being able to have collaborative, healthy relationships where you value somebody and they value you. You're both doing your best work. You're self-actualizing. You're in a position of truly partnering in a way that's productive and profitable for not only yourself, but also the rest of society. And all of that comes back to, I mean, there's a, a mindset that is about how you value yourself, how you value capital, how you value creating capital. And then it also comes down to um, being able to be in a position of control. So there's so much about successful thinking that's not on the side of giving up responsibility, giving up capital, letting the banking institution be the one that has all the capital that we have to go to and be at their mercy, fill out all the applications, prove everything to them, sign our life away. And our interest away and pay that interest. Instead, Nelson is saying this whole uh, paradigm shift can happen if we value savings first, because then we can be in a position of control.
2: Yeah, and my final thoughts on all this is Nelson used to say, you know, if you think about having to try to change the philosophy of the government, the clergy, the local teachers union, all these things, then you're going to have be in a state of despair. But if you can take the banking down to the you and me level and just change it in your life, you, you're going to suddenly get a feeling of control. And with that sudden feeling of control comes a freedom uh, that you're, you've never experienced before. And uh, I've said this before in the podcast. And I think it's analogous to this. If if you don't believe that being in control um is liberating, then cancel your car insurance and drive your car across the city and and feel that angst. And that's what's like not having capital. Not having capital to you know pay normal bills, not having capital to pay things that come up, and then not having capital to actually take advantage of a situation it's the same kind of angst that you feel cuz you're out of control of the situation and so my final thought for today is infinite banking is not about the numbers it's it's about a way of life it's about a philosophy that you're going to live your life a certain way and that is the problem that the social media outlets the tiktoks and the instagram have totally gotten wrong with this in the last five years. They're, they're basically turning it into every other type of investment instead of a savings program. And this is the, the thing that we want to get the message out to get back to the basics, just like you would in anything in your life.
1: You know, Bruce, that's because so many people are aware of the felt need that they have right now. And often that felt need is what marketers and Mm -hmm. any advertising addresses. If you are hungry, by golly, will you certainly need that item that is at the checkout lane because you need to eat right now. And that's going to be total junk food, candy bars, full of sugar, bad fats. And are we going to grab that? Yes, because we're hungry and we have that immediate need. But if we're thinking really about the long-term and not the short-term we're going to probably have planned a little bit better, know what meals we're going to be creating. We're going to have something nutritious that's a well balanced meal that we didn't just wait till the last minute to run in the store and grab something. Instead, we shopped intentionally. We grabbed those ingredients. We thought long term about the health that we wanted to create for our family. Maybe we didn't even go to the grocery store because we found something online that was more beneficial to our health. And so, this is all about long term thinking. I mean, all of it comes over to this new paradigm, this new philosophy of having a way of savings. Controlling capital, but it—it's this long-term thinking. It is thinking for not just that immediate need that we have right now, that immediate craving that we can satisfy with a quick fix. That's that quick rate of return. That's that I got to deploy this capital. I've got to feel that—that um, that, you know, excitement of investing and getting something back right away. It's instead this long-term thinking about how do I control not only my future, but the future destiny of my children, my grandchildren, how do I put them in a better position where they also control capital? And Bruce, you're talking about the car and taking away the car insurance. I'm like, just put some black ice under you. That feeling of being out of control, that's terrible and terrifying. And if anyone, I mean, I'm just thinking of driving a car and being out of control. As soon as the the road underneath you gives way and you are going sideways and you meant to be going forward or you're you're accelerating and you meant to be stopping, that's not a position of being out of control that anyone wants to be in. And that comes back to Warren Buffett as well saying to the number one rule is to never lose money. Number two is to look back at number one. So um, infinite banking allows you to, to do this very powerfully to be in a position of control. And it is that mindset shift. So thank you for being with us on the show. Thank you to those of you who popped in some comments and we need to um, be better about verbally asking for questions at the beginning, Bruce, you did a great job of asking in the comments. For anyone who had questions, um, we are going to be continuing on with this series and diving through the rest of the book because there's just so much to talk about. It's a a starting spot that there's so much to talk about from Nelson Nash's book that really helps us to make better decisions. And so we're going to be continuing on in that series. We've got a great um, some great guests coming up for you as well. And if you ever have questions about money, about infinite banking, about financial mindset, anything, please go ahead and put those into either the comment section of wherever you're watching this show. You can also email them to us at hello@themoneyadvantage.com. At We'd love to answer your questions live on the show. Sometimes we have even had questions that we've dedicated an entire episode towards because they're so comprehensive and would be so beneficial for so many people. So uh, we just love to be able to have that dialogue back and forth. And if you're ready to take the next steps to move forward with infinite banking yourself, you can reach out to our team at themoneyadvantage.com. There's a button on the front page where you can click to schedule an appointment and just really start the conversation. Find out, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Here's my goals. Here's what I have to work with. Here's where I'm wanting to end up. How can this work for me? What's the wise? Way to fund a policy? What's the best way to structure a policy? And how do I get into that position of valuing savings, having that savings, and being in a position that I'm controlling my financial destiny? So we'd love to have that conversation with you. And chances are, if you are interested in this conversation, you're already making great strides towards being an excellent, um, having excellent self discipline in the area of savings. And so we'd love to be able to see that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Bruce, for just bringing so much enlightenment and wisdom to the show, as always. And in closing, please remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside.
0: Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com.